our young men who uh, feel called to ministry, and um, it's, it's a blessing to see them and to, to walk with them as they begin preaching and to talk to them and to prepare them for their first times preaching and then to sit down with them afterwards and, and whatnot, and you've been able to see some of them. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny, they, they're always concerned, the, the pressure, the pressure, right? you know, i got to preach, and man, I don't know if I'm going to be long enough, and uh, oh, standing up here with all these people, and so my counsel is always, well, you know, let the Word of God be the Word of God. Just let it speak for itself. Don't worry about the audience. And, and so I, a little while ago, I was thinking, I don't know that I'm following my own device, or only advice tonight um, because tonight I'm preaching on Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and my wife is in the audience. Um, and so I was thinking about that a lot, and uh, we were kind of laughing, joking around the way here and stuff, but um, evidently God may have delivered me out of that because she's not in here now unless she's in the cry room and I can't see her, so... Um, the intervention of a one-year-old who is grumpy. Um, I, I was going to tell Steph before you all that I wasn't going to use any illustrations from our marriage uh, tonight, but I did call uh, Retta and, and Jen and, and Tanya um, this week and, and talk to them, so have a lot of good wisdom to share with you all tonight. Um, seriously, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight and not a lot of time to do it, and so I want us to go ahead and jump in. In the 1960s, Virginia Slim Cigarettes ran an ad that it applauded. It's a little commercial. You can go online and look at it, and you can see all kinds of their ads uh, on the Internet. But their, their tagline was, you've come a long way, baby. And it was marketed towards women. And, and the goal of this, this was just to applaud how far that women have, had come at that time. It was a, an applause of kind of breaking free of the domineering men and the oppression from males and and, and so they boldly proclaimed, a lot of you remember this, I don't remember that, I had to do research to go back and find this out, um, but, um, but they did. They, they applauded how far that ladies had come at that time. Well, the problem is, is that it also signified a tragic step away from the biblical idea of manhood and womanhood. And so the, the length that the women went, the length that females went in that time that was applauded, you've come a long way, baby, they had, but it proved to be very costly. John Piper says this. He says, The tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. The consequence, rather, is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. The victory of the feminist movement came with a great cost. And it's one that a cost, a price that's being paid in marriages across our land. And so tonight we turn to a passage in, in Ephesians chapter 5 that is one of the most important passages in all Scripture concerning marriage and giving us an idea of what does a godly marriage look like. But before we jump in there, I think it's, I think it's worth our time to take just a minute to, to step back into Genesis 1 and 2 and to provide that as a foundation because the reality is that there, we should never enter into a conversation of manhood and womanhood or a conversation of the roles of the male and female, the man and the woman, the husband and wife without the, the necessary backdrop of Genesis 1 and 2 and that will become a little more clear to you in a moment. So here, here's, the, here's the truth that we learn in Genesis 1 and 2. If you, if you want to flip quickly, you, don't ha you can, you don't have to. You can just listen. In Genesis 1.27, God reveals this. He says, so God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. This is a very significant statement, a very significant truth that we need to know tonight, that in Genesis, this is Genesis 1, this is before the fall, before Genesis 3, right? It's before the fall, it's the perfection of the Garden of Eden. God created man in his own image. And he didn't just say God created man in his own image and leave it at that. He said he created man in his own image. He created male and female in his own image. This is significant because it tells us that both men and women were equally created in God's image. So we are equal image bearers of God. So every male, every female sitting in here, we all have the same equality and dignity and being and who we are as persons. So there's no hierarchy of, well, men are more important or women are more important or, or anything. They're, we are all equally important. We all equally bear the image of God. So that's the first truth we need to have in the back of our mind before we approach Ephesians 5. Here's the second truth. It's from Genesis 2, verses 18 to 23. We won't read all of this. I do want to flip over to it just for a moment, though. Genesis 2, 18 to 23 We read this, as then God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam was not found a helper suitable for him. So there was a problem. The problem was that there was no suitable helper for Adam. So what does God do? So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We'll come back to that verse in a few moments, but here's what we learn in this passage, is that while man was created, man and woman were created equal in dignity and being, they were created to have different roles. We see in the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam was created first. He was given the rights of dominion, and he named the woman an act of authority. Eve was created out of man. She was created as a helper. She was a necessary companion. So the man and the woman both had roles in the Garden of Eden. So the creation narrative establishes the man as the head of the woman in every way without demeaning or devaluing her in any way. Do you hear that? So in, I'm going to say again, the creation narrative establishes the man as the head of the woman in every way without demeaning or devaluing her in any way. That's an important truth that we need to know. So the first truth that we're both creating God's image. The second truth is that we have different roles. The third truth is that manhood and womanhood roles, the roles that we have as men and women, are not a result of the fall. They're not a result of the fall. This truth here is the key reason why we need to come back to Genesis 1 and 2 because some people, when they approach Ephesians 5, they're going to say, well, the reason we have Ephesians 5 and the reason we have the roles in marriage are because of the fall. If it hadn't been for sin, we wouldn't need all this. But the reality is, is that in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall, there were different roles that men and women had. And so we need to have a firm understanding of that. 
Ortland, Ray Ortland, he calls it the paradox of creation. He says that male and female equality does not constitute undifferentiated sameness. R. Kent Hughes says it another way. He says the equality of worth does not mean equality of role. So we're equal in worth, but we have different roles. We see that in creation. So tonight, turn with me to Ephesians 5. This is, as I said, one of the more important passages on marriage and on the functions, the roles in marriage in all of Scripture. It's also what I believe is one of the more misunderstood passages on marriage, if not the most misunderstood passage on marriage. And it's quite controversial at times in our culture. So we need to carefully look at this text tonight. Let's read together beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be blameless and holy. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Here's the first truth that I want you to see tonight. As soon as we start, the, the, the realization, the understanding that we need to have this passage is this, is that, that in this passage, in, in 522 through 33, we see that the marriage relationship, the institution of marriage, is set up to, to be a picture of what? It's to be a picture of, of Christ and the church. You, you see that. Look at verse 22 and 23. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. Right away, we start getting a picture that this relationship is, the, is compared to the relationship between Christ and the church. So what happens is as we read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, we have these parameters that are set, these boundaries that are set, so that we can't interpret anything about the role of the husband outside or beyond what Christ's role is. And we can't interpret anything about the wife beyond what the role of the church is. And so we have these boundaries. So, so the role of the husband can, cannot be any less or any more than what would accurately reflect Christ. Wives, your role cannot be anything less or more than what would accurately reflect the church. So we have these boundaries that we understand, and, and we can ask certain questions and go, okay, what does my role look like as a husband? My role looks like, or it should look like, that of Christ in his relationship with the church. So husbands, why should you love your wife sacrificially, provide for her needs, lead her spiritually, care for her? Because Christ did. End of statement. No argument necessary. Christ did it, and that's the example you're to follow. 
Wives, why should you submit to your husband and respect him? Because your reflection of the church is submission to Christ. End of statement. That's the boundaries. That's the, that's the answer. And so we can, we can feel uncomfortable about it. We can not like the words. We can know that our culture stands against it in many ways. And it's not the same picture that's seen on TV shows and the way that, that men are displayed in sitcoms or women are displayed in sitcoms. We can know all that, but it doesn't matter. The truth of God's word establishes that the husband is to reflect Christ in a marriage and that a wife is to reflect the church in the marriage. So that the world around us sees a picture of the gospel. That's the beauty of our marriages. God, God could give no greater responsibility, no greater responsibility than for Steph and I in our marriage to display the gospel. That, that is a, a great blessing that, that the way that I treat Steph, the way that she treats me, should be a display of the gospel to my children. It should be a display of the gospel to you to the world around us, to our neighbors, the way that they see us interacting. It should be a display of the gospel. Paul's talked about walking wisely because the days are evil. He's talked about, they set up this, this, um, this idea or the, kind of the, the precedent that, that Christians are to, to look different. We should look radically different than the world around us. And that's no different in our marriages. Our marriages should look radically different because they're a picture of the gospel. And because they're a picture of the gospel, there's much at stake. There's much at stake. Satan knows this. Why do you think he attacks marriages so violently, so aggressively? Why, why does he seek to undermine the integrity of men at every click of an internet page? Why does he seek to undermine the roles of women? through worldviews and philosophies and movements throughout history? Why does he seek to undermine men through sitcoms and books and magazines? Because he knows the value of marriage. He knows the picture it's to display. He knows it's a testimony of the gospel that, that the outside world looking in at our marriages should see the love of Christ and the submission of the church. He knows that. There's a lot at stake. So this, let's look at that tonight. What is the role of the husband? What is the role of the wife? We're going to start with the husband. And I know it addresses the wife first. I understand that. We're going to go with the husband first because I'll go ahead and tell you why I want to do this. Because it's a lot easier to talk about submission after us men have been smacked upside the head by the word. <laughs> it's much easier. And you'll see what I'm talking about in just a second. Look at verse 23. What is the role of the husband? The role of the husband is given the responsibility of leadership and headship. Do you remember, we've been in Ephesians a while, you remember in Ephesians 1.22, it talks about Christ being the head of the body. And so all throughout Ephesians, he's talking about the, the context of marriage within the context of ultimately Christ being the head of the church and fulfillment down the road when Christ returns is ultimately fulfilled and everything is in order and glory that he is the established and full reigning head of the church then in glory. And so now we are a picture of that, men, as heads and leaders at home. We are the head of our wives as Christ is the head of the church. In verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. He says, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior. Men, be who God has called you to be. This is no time 
for weak leadership at home. Be the head of your home. Be the leader of your home. You and I are the ones that God will hold responsible. You, you've heard it said before, I believe, from this pulpit. I don't, I don't know if Dr. Stinson said it or if Bill may have said it one day. If not, you're about to hear it that, that in Genesis 3, what happens? Who, who sins? What does Satan do? do? He, under, he undermines what? The marriage. He undermines the, the female and the role, the role of the male and the female by doing what? He goes to who? He goes and approaches Eve. And Eve takes to the fruit and does what? Gives it to Adam. So what does God do? He comes and says, hey, Eve, what in the world are you thinking? He doesn't do that, does he? Men, who does he come after? He comes after Adam. Because Adam's the head. Adam bears the responsibility of leading that relationship. If there's something awry in my home, God comes knocking on my door. And he says, what's wrong at your house, Todd? What, why, is, why is your wife suffering spiritually? Why, what's wrong with your, your children? They're, they're having a hard time. They're, what's going on? Why have you allowed this to creep in? I have that responsibility. Is it a burden at times? Why? Because it's a great, great opportunity and blessing and privilege to display Christ. And it's a burden that, by God's grace, he allows us to bear, men. We are responsible for our homes. We bear the weight of decision-making. We bear the weight of leadership and responsibility. You cast the vision and you set the tone for your marriage. Shame on us. Shame on us, men, if our wives are leading our homes spiritually. Shame on us. I, I, I am so thankful for a godly wife, and I know that there's ladies in here that are godly ladies, and they challenge and they push us. Praise God for that. I don't want to in any way demean the women. And I know there are women that are just intellectual giants who know theology. But you know what, men? You can still lead your home spiritually. You can still lead out. You can still seek after the word. You can still set the tone for your home spiritually. You are the leader. You are the head. So what does this headship look like? What does this headship look like, man? First, it's characterized by Christ-like love. Look at verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The love that we're to lead with is to, to exemplify the love of Christ. It is to, to be an example, it's to, to show the love of Christ. Listen, this is a command. Husbands, love your wives. There, there's no condition to it. It doesn't say love your wives if she does this. Love your wives if she meets this need. Love your wife if she looks like this. Love your wife if you feel like it. He says, love your wife. Love your wife. The language is in the present, which shows continual. It's continuous. You are to habitually, continually, day after day, love your wife. There's never a day where I have an excuse for not loving my wife. There's never a day, it doesn't matter what she does. It doesn't matter what the future holds, that I have an excuse to go, you know, I don't love you anymore. That's never warranted. Never warranted. Listen to what John MacArthur says. He says, It's certainly intended for a husband to admire and be attracted by his wife's beauty, winsomeness, kindness, gentleness, or any other positive quality or virtue. But though such things bring great blessing and enjoyment, they are not the bond of marriage. If every appealing characteristic and every virtue of his wife disappears, a husband is still under just as great of an obligation to love her. 
There's never a moment where I have an excuse for not loving my wife. I'm to have the love of Christ for her. There will be days where she is difficult to love. And there are. There have been. But I have no excuse not to love her. There's days where I'm very difficult to love. There will be more of them. I am called to love her with a sacrificial, a pure, a deep love. In verse 26, he kind of skips and he, he kind of steps away from us for a minute, men, and he says, listen, look at what Christ did. Christ gave himself up for the church. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus' example of love is the model. He, he shifts focus and he says, I want you to keep your gaze on Christ. Men, we are to have the same love for, for our wives as Christ said. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for a while to sanctify her, to sanctify her, to, to present her holy and blameless. How does he do it? He sanctifies her with the word, with the word. Some debate the meaning of this. Some would say, well, you know what? He's talking about a reference to water baptism. Others would say, well, no, actually, uh, it's, it's regarding the cleansing power of the gospel. I, I personally would go with the latter. I think he's referring to the cleansing power of the gospel when he says that, that he sanctifies her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. But here's the thing. Regardless of where you come out in that, and you can read books and books on it, the underlying principle is this, that Christ loved the church with a sanctifying, purifying love. And it's one which we as husbands are to emulate. We are to love our wives with a purifying love. We have a responsibility for the spiritual well-being of our wives. Listen, I can't bring about the sanctification of Steph. I can't. You, you notice that it doesn't say that the husband is to sanctify her. He sets Christ as the example that Christ sanctified the church. In just a minute, he's going to say, now, Christ, or now husbands do likewise. It's Christ that does the sanctification. Christ actually purifies. But you know what I can do? I can bathe my wife with prayer. I can bathe my wife with the truths of the gospel, with the scriptures, with the word. I can encourage her in her faith. I can hurl her in front of God's grace and keep pushing her and, and guiding her, setting the tone and leading her in Christ that he would be able to sanctify her and grow her all the more. So we should be leading spiritually. He says in verse 28, he says, this, he says, so husbands ought also, so in the same way, do the same thing. He says, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. So what are we to do? Husbands likewise. First, love your wife as your own body. Care for her. How did Christ love the church? Think about that. How did he love the church? Then we're to love her the same way. There's no other passage of Scripture that, that God uses to hit me with more consistently than this passage. I, like Bill, I did some premarital counseling yesterday afternoon. And I told him, I said, this, this passage is at times my favorite passage, and at times, honestly, I just don't like it. Because there's times where I don't want to love. I want to be mad. I want to hold a grudge. I don't want to forgive. 
I don't want to have grace. I don't want to show mercy. I want to go, yeah, hey, I want to point the finger. But guess what? Guess what? In those moments, the Holy Spirit brings this passage to mind and says, hey, knucklehead, go turn to Ephesians 5, and can you please remember what I've done for you and how I love you, how I love the church? And you need to be loving your wife in that same manner. There's no room for you not to show mercy to her. There's no room for you not to take the extra measure. There's no room for you not to show forgiveness, not to show love, not to show patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness to her. You go and you show her me because you're the head of this home and you step out and you take the first step. You're the leader. You set the tone of forgiveness. You set the tone of growth in me. You set the tone of mercy. You set the tone of maturity in me. Because I put you there to do that. And you're responsible for it. The second thing he says is to nourish and cherish her in verse 29. Our goal is for the betterment of both her physical and emotional state. Husbands, we're to nourish her, to, to bring about growth. This, the, the word, this word used for nourish is only, the only other time it's used is in 6.4 when it talks about that we should bring up children, bring them up. This is what the word means, is to bring them up, to bring them out of. It's set in contrast to the man who would hate his own body. He says, no one hates his own body. But he nourishes it. He says, cherish her, care for her. She is your prized possession, the one you highly esteem. Men, nourish and cherish your wives. In summary for men, lead in love. Lead in love. Your wife is not a doormat. She's your God-given helper. She's a jewel. And we are to lead her as Christ has led her. And the reason we start with men is because, believe it or not, while this passage has the rap of being the submission passage, it has much more to say to the man than it does the woman. Paul deals with the men very clearly, very plainly. The role of the wife. The wife is called to submit to the man's headship as the church submits to the Lord. In verse 22, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. One way in which, ladies, one way in which you obey and glorify God is in the way you submit to your husband. The way you serve your husband. That's one way that you just obey him. Submit as to the Lord. In 1 Peter 3, it's submit in the Lord, as is appropriate in the Lord. That's a little different here. It's used different. As to the Lord. As if you were submitting to Christ, submit to your husband. Why? Christ is the head of the church. Your husband is the head of your home. Submit to your husband as to the Lord. This is the driving force, the motivating factor of wifely submission. It's not the worth. It's not the actions or attitudes or qualities, the intellect, any of that about your husband. That's not why you submit. The reason, wives, that you submit is because Christ is your Lord. And so just as we submit to Christ, he's called Wives to submit to their husbands. So what does it look like? What does godly submission look like? First of all, I'll say this. I've never, ever spoken to a wife that said, I'm not going to submit to a man who leads me by the love of Christ. I've never heard that. I've never, I've never spoken to a lady that said, you know what? He's loving me in a sacrificial way. He shows mercy. He shows grace. He's kind to me. He's good to me. He nourishes me. He cherishes me. He's my, I'm like his 
prized possession. I'm not submitting to that kind of leadership. Ladies, you want that, don't you? Don't you want your husband to lead out? Don't you want him to say, hey, come on, let's glorify God. Hey, come with me. Man, let me pray for you. I'm praying over you. I want to invest in you. I want to see you grow spiritually. I want to do what I shouldn't do. I want to show mercy. I want to give you grace. Don't you want that? You want that. It's much easier to submit when that's the case. Submission is not a dirty word. Our culture has turned it into one, but it's not. It doesn't make you a doormat. It does not take away your voice or opinion. Ask Steph. <laughs> I love my wife. She's got a great voice. She is in the nursery, by the way. I'm, she doesn't have to, I've seen her bopping. I think she turned the light up on me so I could see her in there. Submission doesn't make you a lesser person, ladies. It does not make you a lesser person. And I know, I know some ladies have strong personalities and some men have kind of shy personalities. That doesn't matter. You're still called to submit and you're called to lead. So do it. Also, I, I would say this before we move on. Men are called to submit as well. You understand that, right? It's not like women are the only ones to submit. Hey, you guys, you ladies, y'all submit. We're going to live however we want to. We're the head. We're going to do what we want to. No. We submit to Christ. We submit to the authority of the church, church leaders. We submit to the civil government. We submit to our employers. We all live under submission. It's clearly defined here that in marriage, women are called to submit. Verse 22, what, who are you to submit to? He says, submit to your own husbands. Can I point out here that he does not say submit to every man that walks down the street. He says submit to your own husbands. Submit to your own husbands. This isn't conditioned on his perfection as a leader. There's going to be times where he makes poor choices. There's going to be times where he doesn't know what to do. There's going to be times where he leads in a way that you go, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe I disagree with him. You're still called to submit. Here's the thing. As you converse and as you go through these decisions as a couple, voice your opinion. Share your concerns. Give your guidance. Give your wisdom. God has spoken to me in wonderful, wonderful ways through my wife. There have been things that God has shown her and led her to say to me that has changed the way we've done things. And I look back and go, praise the Lord that I'm not some domineering, ignorant, headstrong man that doesn't ever listen to my wife and take her counsel. At the end of the day, as you debate, there's times where we disagree. And I've got to make a choice. And I make a choice. And there's times where Steph agrees with that choice. It's her choice. There's times where she disagrees with that choice. But at the end of the day, the responsibility is for me to bear the weight of that decision and for Steph to submit and follow in. So that when we walk out of that bedroom or out of wherever we are, we're discussing it. When we make the decision in public or we voice it, then no one knows that we had a disagreement about it, but that we step forth in unity as a couple. So when he decides, submit to his leadership and follow him. And what are you to submit to him? Verse 24, he says everything. You follow his leadership in all areas of your life. You affirm, encourage, and support his leadership. The question has to be asked here. What about the sinful husband? What about the abusive husband? Husbands, please listen. Your role of headship and leadership 
does not justify and merit the disobedience to the rest of Scripture. Just because you're given authority in your home does not negate the fact that you're to show love, that you're not to abuse and hurt and harm, that you're not to lead her into sin. You are to live the whole of Scripture in your home. Ladies, praise God that He saw fit to put safeguards in place for you. The church has the responsibility to hold your husbands accountable for godly leadership. And I think I can speak on behalf of the staff and the deacons. We will do that. We will do that. We have the responsibility and we will hold your husbands accountable for your safety. He's affirmed the, the, the uh, leadership and the laws of our country, our nation, the civil government. And there's laws in place to protect you. So please know that. Finally, he says, let the wife see that she respects her husband in 533. Respect is huge for a man. Read Proverbs 31, ladies, when you go home and look at the, the lady who's exemplified. She shows great and utmost respect. She's of noble character, and she respects her husband so much that it even, she even works to elevate the respect he has in the community. Show respect to the way you talk to him, the way you disagree with him, the way you confront him, the way you support him. The way you talk about him around others and to others. Show respect to your husband. Men crave respect. Men crave respect. And it's a dangerous thing if they do not get respect at home. They need that respect. They need it. And you're called to show it to them. 531 to 33 to conclude our time tonight is a conclusion. And Paul draws us back to the creation. He draws us back. He says, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what does he do? He calls it a mystery. Why? We discussed earlier in our study in Ephesians, what is a mystery when he talks about mystery? A mystery is something that had once been unrevealed and unknown, but is now revealed and known. God has revealed it to us. What has he revealed? That in Genesis 1, the, the people knew the roles, they knew the responsibilities, the blessings of the marriage. But they didn't have a full picture of what it meant. But Paul defines, he says, the mystery is great. It's great. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Christ and the church. The meaning, the value, the eternal purpose of our marriages has been revealed in Scripture. You and I are to demonstrate the gospel. We're to demonstrate the gospel through our marriages. So the question is this, is does my marriage reflect the gospel? Does your marriage reflect the gospel? Are you encouraging my marriage to reflect the gospel? Am I encouraging your marriage to reflect the gospel? Men, are you reflecting Christ? Are you reflecting Christ to your wife? Are you reflecting Christ to your children, to your friends, to your family? Ladies, are you reflecting the church? Are you showing how the church submits to the leadership of Christ its head? Are you reflecting that to your children, to your husband, to the culture? There's a lot at stake in our marriages. A lot at stake. The gospel's at stake. Do our marriages reflect the gospel? Let's pray. Father, we bow before you tonight.
thankful, God, for the gift of marriage, thankful for creating us as male and female, equally in worth and dignity, but God, with different roles. God, we pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds from the lies of culture that would say that we do not need those roles. That, God, we would see that there's a greater purpose in mind. There's a greater reason for roles than just to make things easier. God, that reason is to declare and to proclaim and cast a picture of the gospel. So, God, I pray for every couple in this room. I pray, God, that you would bless their marriages, that the men in this room would exemplify Christ in the way they lead their homes. God, that the, the ladies in this room would exemplify the church in their homes. God, those of us in the room that are single, God, I pray that, that we would encourage that and we would uh, just affirm that in the marriages around us. I pray that, that we would just be guarded, that you would protect our marriages, that you would clearly show forth the gospel through us. God, we're thankful for your word. We ask by your grace that you would give us the strength to live by it. In Christ's name, amen.